Grab your Bibles if you've got them, or your iPad, or your phone, or whatever it is you look at when you uh, read God's Word. Uh, We're going to be again in the book of uh, Revelation, last book of the Bible. Uh, Just turn all the way to the right, and you will be there. Just a a little recap first uh, on where we are in this story. We've got a lot of stuff to cover today, as usual, and uh, we're going to get right to it. Where we are in the story, though, is uh, this book is written by the Apostle John, and John is an old man by now, and he is exiled on the island of Patmos, which is an island in the Mediterranean Sea just off the coast of western Turkey. It's uh, 90 AD-ish, somewhere in there. Uh, Jerusalem has been destroyed uh, several years ago, uh, almost 20 years ago by now. And uh, John is living as punishment on this island. And uh, one day, uh, the man that he hasn't seen in about 60 years Uh, His friend, his rabbi, uh, the man he spent with his companions um, three years of his life uh, living with this man, Jesus, who he sees here in this vision, the the man he had seen with his own eyes right in front of him live a perfectly righteous life for the three years that he lived with him at least. Um, He saw that. The, The man he had heard claimed to be the one prophesied by the prophets of old, uh, the one who would fulfill all the promises that God had given to His people, Uh, the one who said He was the bringer of the new covenant that God had promised to make with His people. And decades ago, John was there when they crucified his friend and his teacher And he was there when the darkness fell, and he was there when the earthquake came and shook the place where God's Son has been slain, or had been slain. The very same place where God 2,000 years before had spared his friend Abraham's son from being sacrificed. John had seen Jesus after that too, spent time with them, and was there when the followers of Jesus saw their friend that they had spent three years of their life with rise up into the clouds to return to his father. And then 60 years of life go by. I haven't even got 60 years in yet. Um, 39 and holding, right? Um, uh, That was a lie. I'm not 39, just... All, uh, disc- full disclosure here. Uh, the, the 60 years of life, though, I haven't got there yet, and this is after 60 years have gone by. John's an old man now, and he encounters his friend, his, the risen Savior, Jesus, and this book that we have now called Revelation is the fruit of that encounter that John has with his friend as an old man 60 years after he saw his friend go back to heaven. Now, we're going to just set the stage here a little bit because we're switching sections, right? We were in the uh, seven churches, uh, the seven letters to the seven churches, chapter two and three, for uh, three weeks, I think, and uh, we're moving on now to chapters four and five, but we just got to make sure we're we're setting the stage right here. So, chapter one, flip back a page, Uh, it's page 1028 in my Bible, the first uh, chapter of Revelation, you can see... um, that there is an introduction and an explanation and an address and a greeting in this first chapter. Because 
Revelation, the book, remember I told you, is made up of four sections. And the first chapter is the first section. It's the introduction. The second chapter is when we just spent, or sorry, the second section is chapters two and three, which we just spent three weeks studying. And now we're getting to the third section, chapters uh, four and five. The fourth um, section uh, begins in uh, chapter 26, and then it goes on for the rest of the book. And here, we're just trying to follow the logical progression of this book, okay? Uh, follow the story that John is laying out here. So, right, something we learned from John right away is the whole purpose of this book. That's in Revelation verses 1 and 2. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Okay, that's, that's what's happening here. God is giving Jesus a message, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him, and Jesus is going to give this to John... And John is going to give this to the church. Now, the angel that John mentions here, right? The, he made it known by sending his, his angel to his servant John. Um, this angel that he's talking about doesn't actually enter the story until chapter 17, okay? So don't be confused about that. That's coming up later. He's, the one, he's one of the angels, actually, the, the angel is being referred to here, is one of the angels that pours out one of the bulls of God's wrath on the earth after he's done, hey, here's the wrath, hey, John, and he goes over and chats with John for a bit, and then he's with John for the rest of Revelation, pretty much. He shows John some stuff, and he explains some things to him about what he's seeing, and, um, but that's later. This is the angel that is going to explain the, basically the end chapters to John of Revelation, well, after that, after we get this, this kind of setup done, um, God gave Jesus this message for his church, and notice what it's about, the things that must soon take place. That's what the message is about. Then we get to Messer, to sections like 4 to 7, verses 4 to 7 there. That's just John's own greeting. It's much like Paul and Peter and the rest of the apostles put at the front of their letters. says, hey, everybody, grace and peace. Here's why I'm writing this. Um, The other thing that's in here in this introduction is this, this um, how this is going to play out. Jesus has got seven letters to seven churches, seven statements he wants written first before he shows uh, John what's coming up. And that kind of gets clarified shortly here. Um, in verse 8, though, first, there's an, there's an interjection that John gives. Uh, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He wants to make sure right now what Jesus is presenting himself as is known to everybody. This is Jesus as God, Yahweh incarnate, giving this message. And then in verses 19 to 20, John's description uh, is of uh, the beginning of this encounter. John sees Jesus as he's never seen him before in all his glory and all his power. And Jesus knows he's seeing, or sorry, John knows he's seeing Jesus, but he's also seeing God at the same time. The description that John gives of Jesus here is very similar to the visions of God that the Old Testament prophets wrote down as well. Jesus is the man who is also God, both God and man, Yahweh, God of the universe in the flesh, and he has something to say to John and to the church. 
And this is where John gets his instructions to write uh, seven letters to seven churches. Notice in, in verse 11 what he's supposed to write to them. Chapter 1, verse 11, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. Write what you see. And just for clarity, make sure you understand me, John. In verse 19, it says, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. So we get the idea. Jesus is very clear. I'm telling you some stuff about what's going to happen. You need to write it all down and send it. The stuff that's already happened, the stuff that's going to happen. Write it, everything I show you down. And then Jesus proceeds to give John a personal message from himself, from Jesus, to each of those seven churches. We've already studied that for three weeks. Jesus is like, John, I'm going to show you some things. Some things that my Father has sent me to show you, things that must take place. Write it all down, everything I show you, send it to these seven churches, and then send these seven churches these personal letters to. Okay, that's the, that's the setup for chapters 4 and 5 and the rest of the book. So we get to now Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. And we read, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Okay, This is all speculation on what this door looks like, what John is actually seeing. I, we don't know if it's a wooden door, a metal door, a, a door made of candy canes. I, I don't know what it is. There's a door that John sees and the point is, it's open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, okay, I think this is uh, what, what John is saying here, is shows us that the voice of the trumpet that Jesus uses first, the, the command thing, back in uh, verse 11 of chapter 1, right, John says, um, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet issuing this command. But then we look down at uh, verse, chapter, verse 17, when I saw him, because John's overwhelmed like everybody is when they encounter God, when I saw him, I fell down at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first. So it's almost like there's two tones here. And when John gets to chapter 4, he's like, hey, back to the trumpet voice of Jesus here. That's what's happening. It's not the comforting, hey, get up, no problem, I'll tell you all. It's the, like, the command of heaven voice that is going on here. And so he's commanded, come up here, and what's he going to show him? What's he already said he's going to show him several times in this book? I will show you what must take place after this. Okay, makes sense. That's where we are. It looks like we're finally here, right? We've been how many weeks now getting to the things that must take place? The first three chapters are an introduction, of, apparently, of all this. So now we're going to get to the end time stuff. Now we're going to get to the juicy stuff. Um, uh, actually, that's not what happens here. Just to burst everybody's a bubble, that's not time for that yet. That's actually still later. Jesus has a bit more to say first, apparently. A bit more setup to the story before he begins. The introduction isn't quite over yet. God wants to show us something else first. 
And that is what chapters 4 and 5 are. It's kind of like, John, before I tell you all that end time stuff, here's what I need you to see first. Here's what I need you to pause. Here's where I need you to pause. I need to talk about a couple of things about what I'm going to show you, and here's where we need to pause too and have a look at a couple of the things that we're reading. Um, The first thing is this, I just want to point out, just to kind of help everybody understand as we move forward. Jesus is showing and telling John a story. Okay, I've I've said this several times. This is the way you got to think about this if you want to understand what's happening here. Jesus is telling John a story here. And it's going to be important to keep that in mind. Jesus is going to tell John the story of what will happen at the time of the end of this age and his return. Now, question, how do we tell stories? And how do we, and how do we understand stories when we hear them? Because we tell the most all stories all the time. Every day we tell people stories. Many times a day. We don't call them stories, but that's what we're doing. Think about how we communicate with each other. Think about the things we say. We say things like, hey, did you hear what happened? And then what comes next? A story, right? Or, hey, let me tell you what I saw. What comes next? A story. You ask your friend, hey, what do I do about my kid or my husband or my job? And then what happens? Well, then you describe or explain the story of the dilemma that you are in. We are constantly telling each other stories. All day long, we explain and describe many different things to many different people about all kinds of different events. And and this is what's happening here. We don't need to overcomplicate this. This is Jesus just telling John a story. And I, I used the analogy before, and I think it's really helpful, of Jesus showing John a movie because we're used to seeing movies. We're, we don't read as much anymore, but we, we do watch media. And we know that stories are mostly chronological, right? You start at the beginning, and then you tell the story until you get to the end of the story. Sometimes there's a need to kind of swing back to the past and clarify something or add something, but generally the story moves from the past to the end. We all understand how that works. But the main thing I want you to remember in this about stories is that there are huge amounts of gaps in time in any story. We don't, some, some are large, some are small. No story is ever told in real time. You know that um, TV show that's kind of was popular way uh, a long time ago, uh, 24, it's kind of had a resurgence lately, Kiefer Sutherland, he's this CIA or FBI or I don't know, he's some kind of cop, and the whole premise of the story is we're going to tell a story of a 24-hour period. Well, that's not true, right? Because if they did tell the whole story of that 24 hours, how long would it take? 24 hours probably, right? But they spend a whole week to make a 40-minute show about a 24-hour period, um, we, just, we just don't tell stories in real time, right? When, Ka- when I come home from work and Carolyn goes, um, how was your day? I'm like, well, I got up and then I put my socks on. I made a coffee 
And, uh, and then I sat on the couch for uh, 10 minutes and I read this. And then I got up and I put my pants on and then I went outside and then I unlocked the car. And then, You don't tell stories like that. That would be the most boring thing in the world. At least I hope you don't tell stories like that. If, if you do, don't, please don't ever tell me a story um, because that's not how we tell stories. When she asks me how my day was, I tell her stories about what happened. I skip most of the day. Most of the time, and I concentrate on the pertinent information, there's always gaps in times and stories. There's always scene, and then this scene, then this scene, then this scene. And this is the same in this letter. This letter that John wrote is no different than that. The, the reason I'm making a point of this again and making a kind of a big deal of it is this is the kind of stuff that gets people confused about what's happening in this story. And right here in these two chapters, we need to deal with a couple of these things. And once we do, you'll kind of see what I'm talking about and the importance of how we understand this book this way. Because once you kind of get this letter put together, the way, the way that, once you kind of get the way that John is transcribing all of these things that he's seeing and hearing, as we work our way through this book, dealing with all of those things, as it goes, just following along with what John is plainly saying, the chronologies and the sequences of events all start to fall into place very quickly. It's not that complicated. So, let's just go back to verse 1 of chapter 4 and just look at the story that John is writing. Now, that brings up the second point, we've got to really make sure we understand if we're going to understand this book. Look at what's the very first thing that John writes um, in this chapter. Chapter 4, verse 1. How does he begin the story? After this I looked. Okay? That is a very, very important phrase in the book of Revelation. We need to pay attention to this phrase. John is going to use this phrase or phrases very, very similar to this after I saw this, then I looked, then I saw, that kind of stuff. And we're going to see that he says this a lot in this book. And every time we see this, we should see in our minds scene change, right? This is, this is a new scene now. It's like watching a movie, okay? There's a scene we would watch, it would end, then there's a new scene, and it ends, and on and on and on until the story is over, having been told scene by scene. Okay, does it make sense? At the, at the end of this series of scenes, we understand the story. That's what's happening here in this book. John is writing, this is what I saw, cut. Okay, then this is what I saw, cut. There's just, we can't see the camera cuts, right? It's, but th that's what's happening, scene after scene after scene. Imagine scenes in a movie that Jesus is showing to John. Let's just, I'll just show this. Let's just look at the next three times that John says this or something similar, okay? So he's saying it in chapter 4, 1, after this I looked. Look at chapter 5, 1, um, then I saw, it says. And look at chapter 5, 11, then I looked. And look at chapter 6, 1, now I watched. Okay? That's the same Greek word in all of those places. Right? Looked, saw, watched, it's all the same word. It's just translated in English differently. Now, and when we look at what John is writing here in these chapters 4 and 5, 
we can see that the end time stuff doesn't start until chapter 6. And first, Jesus wants John to see something else. Jesus wants to set the context properly before he continues with his explanation of what's to come at the end. And Jesus is going to do that not by showing John a vision, as we just saw, he said, then I looked, and then I looked several times. What Jesus is going to set the context, how Jesus is going to set the context for John is by showing John three visions, not one. Jesus has three scenes that, hey, John, I need you to watch these three clips first before we get into the end time stuff. These scenes set the stage for everything else that I'm going to show you, John. You need to see this first, and then we can move on. These scenes are the story of history and the purpose of all creation. That's what Jesus wants to show John first before he moves on into the end time stuff. And we're going to see that everything that follows in this book fits within this story that is told in these three scenes, the story that is contained in chapters 4 and 5 are going to be the foundation from which the rest of the book is going to come. Jesus is like, John, let's just make sure that everyone understands the bigger picture of what's happening here. Let's just review the story behind all the other stories, the foundational truth of what's happening in history, the overarching story I want you to know before we move on. And John says, at once I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasmine and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald, and around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God, and before the throne... There was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal, and around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings and full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who was seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and they, they were created. Okay, now look here. Look here for a sec. Don't look at your Bibles, okay? What's the very first thing that John sees in his vision? What's the very first thing he mentioned? No looking, no cheating, okay? Let me read it again to you, and you can finish it, okay? Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold... A throne, that's right, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. This is the focus of all of creation, the throne of God over all. 
That's what John starts with, and this is what the story is about. And what John is seeing is God's throne in heaven. God's seated on His throne in heaven, the first thing. The throne of God is a big deal, not just in this book, but throughout the whole Bible. You just look it up, how many times God talks about thrones, and particularly His throne, and His Son's throne, and His King's throne. This is where the whole vision of Revelation starts, and the throne is going to keep coming up in this story. Well, then John goes on to describe around things, things around God's throne. This is a familiar scene, actually. Uh, it's a scene that is described in the writings of uh, Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, we read this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. And above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two He covered His face, and with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. That's a a scene of God's from 800 years before that uh, Isaiah had written down. If you want to look at some really crazy stuff, you just flip over to uh, Ezekiel in the Old Testament. And his whole first chapter, his whole first page is his vision of God's throne in heaven. And it goes on and on. And he he spends like half of it talking about those four creatures that Isaiah just mentioned and that John is seeing there. And then he just finishes it like this. And above the expanse and over their heads, over the creatures' heads, over the created things' heads, was the likeness of a throne and the appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of the throne was a likeness with a human appearance, and upward from what had the appearance of his waist was I saw, as it were, gleaming metal like the appearance of fire enclosed all around, and downward from it were the appearance of fire that there was brightness around him like the appearance of a bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so the appearance of the brightness all around, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God, and when I saw it, I fell on my face." And I heard the voice of the one speaking. Like this is, you read that. That's an awesome picture of uh, the glory of God in his throne and his throne room. But there is something new here that we are uh, finding out and John is remarking on. Um, John sees these uh, elders. There's these 24 guys here. Uh, that apparently have their own thrones, and their, their thrones are placed uh, kind of down and in front of Jesus or God's throne. What's, what's the deal here? Because uh, these elders, they have white robes, and they have golden crowns, and there's lots of guessing as to uh, who these elders are, and um, they're actually going to come up several times in this book. In uh, Revelation chapter 7, one of them's actually going to come and talk to John, uh, Revelation 11, they, they lead the congregation in singing and speaking when the seventh trumpet is finally blown and the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our king. Um, chapter 14, there's, a, there's another scene where the elders are shown worshiping and singing. Chapter 19, they're all saying, singing praises to God for his bringing judgment upon the earth. Don't you wonder who they are? Any uh, suggestions on what names that we should give? No, no one knows their name. Nobody knows who they are. If somebody's guessing, if somebody's got some ideas, it, it's conjecture and guessing. The Bible never says who they are. Um, but we do know some things. Okay? We know they're male. They're referred to as he. 
and we know they're human. Um, they wear white robes. Something that, a white robe is something that symbolizes God's righteousness. That's why white robes are given to God's people. God's righteousness is given to his people. Whiteness, unstained white robes are what are promised by God for those who put their faith in him. They're never promised, that similar promise is never made to any kind of spiritual being. And they also wear crowns. No angel is ever shown in heaven wearing a crown. Nobody's shown wearing a crown except the king and eventually his people. The Bible several times mentions that crowns are the, pro- the crowns that are promised to the human redeemed that enter the promised kingdom. These are humans that worship God. They have their own thrones somewhere near God's. That's about all we know right now. Well, I've already uh, read the rest. This would be uh, fairly uh, clear to John. There's this throne that looks kind of like the ones that Ezekiel and Isaiah have described. There's around them, there's these 24 garments, and they have golden crowns and white, and white uh, robes, and there's flashes of lightning and rumbling and peals of thunder, and there's torches, and there's a sea of glass. And then around the throne, there's the four living creatures that both Isaiah and Ezekiel have already described. And then day and night, they never stop saying, holy, 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 just like we're still saying 2,000 years later, we still sing it, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We agree with heaven. And then whenever this happens, the whole courtroom bows in worship to the king to the God who is on their throne, and they declare, worthy are you, O Lord, and our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created. This would be pretty clear to John when he saw this. This, He would know what's going on here. In this throne room scene, John is being shown the state of creation. Yahweh God Almighty rules all. He created all of it. He's in charge of it. Everything else is subservient to him. He is exalted over all, is what this is showing. He is exalted over all of heaven and over all of earth. He created all of it. Everything that is, that is not him, has been created by him. He made it all, and he is all-powerful over it. That's what he is showing John right here. Well, let's read the second scene, and the second scene starts in the beginning of chapter 5. And the second scene starts like this, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven, sorry, sealed with seven seals. Okay, so a scroll. We don't know what the scroll is made of, whether it was some kind of papyrus or, or animal skin or some kind of parchment. We don't know. The scroll would have been tied up somehow with leather or twine or something. They would tie it, and what they do, would they would pull it tight, and then they would stamp or like pour on some wax or some clay or something on it to stamp to seal the binding string or the binding tether around it in 
um, wax or in clay, and they would often stamp or write on each seal something so that it couldn't be broken and put back together again. So the scroll is, has seven bindings on it to hold it shut. Each of those bindings has a seal on it that has something on it that's holding the binding in place. And if you were to open the seal, you would need to break, open the scroll, you would need to break each seal so that you could take the wrapping off seven times so that then it could be opened. Okay, so there's this scroll that God has, the one on, his, on the throne has in his hand, and it's written within and on the back, and it has this seven seals wrapped around it. And then verse 2 says, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Verse 3, And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. You get what's happening here, right? Um, God has, God's the worthy one. They had just declared, you're worthy, God. You're worthy of all of this. But the point is here, there's no one else. There's no one else worthy. Only God is worthy. And to us, to us who know who Jesus is, we're like, yeah, absolutely, you're right. Only God's worthy. That's why Jesus is worthy, because Jesus is God. And just says, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open to the scroll or to look into it. Nobody can read what is written on this scroll because nobody's worthy to open it. Only God is worthy. Nobody else. And he's the one who has it. Somebody needs to get, somebody worthy needs to take the scroll and break the seals and open it so we know what God has written in this scroll. And nobody is worthy to do that. God is going to have to hold the scroll in his hand forever. And one of the elders, there you go, one of the elders are going to come to John and say to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Hey, wait, wait. Apparently, somebody is worthy. This lion of Judah is worthy. He's conquered. He can open the scroll. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, everything changes. The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. This song hasn't been sung yet. This is a new song in heaven. This isn't the one that's been sung for eternity past in the throne room of God of holy, holy, holy is the Lord. We've got a new one. Worthy, What's the very first thing they say to Jesus? You are worthy. You are like God. You are God. You have to be God because you're worthy. Only God is worthy. Worthy are you to take that scroll, to open its seals. And why? Why is he worthy? For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. You're worthy because you have done everything that I have promised to this creation. 
You have purchased all of it with your own blood. You have sacrificed your holiness, your perfectness, your godness, temporarily setting that aside and become a man and stood in their place and paid their price. And you have ransomed them with your own blood. Therefore, you are worthy to take that scroll and open its seals and read what's inside it. This is um, really uh, expands uh, what John, what uh, Old Testament has said. We talked about Isaiah and Ezekiel. One of the key things to understanding Revelation here is we got to understand what Daniel has written, and what's happening this in this particular vision is really just an explanation of. Uh, I've got more information about something Daniel already wrote. Daniel wrote this. God showed Daniel this. As I looked, hey, it sounds kind of like what John is saying here. Daniel says, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames and its wheels were burning fire. That's Ezekiel talks about the wheels of God's throne. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and thousand, a, a thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And I saw, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given a scroll. Well, Daniel doesn't say it like that, but he says, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him and his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed and we find out he goes on the angel to explain hey this kingdom it's going to be given to God's people it's going to be given to the saints and they're going to rule on the earth same message here this message is not changed it's the same yesterday today and forever this is actually the scene that's going. John is going to start expanding upon when we get to chapter 6. But uh, before we do that, we uh, need to see what the third scene is here. And that's in the end of chapter 5, starting at verse 11. Then I looked, John says, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures, and the elders. Okay, so he hears around that scene that he set up first, that picture, around the throne and the elders, and the living creatures, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, again, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. Listen to what's key there, verse 13. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth. No exceptions. Everybody is in this together now. Everybody is making these declarations together. This is the victory scene that John is showing. Jesus is showing John. Let me show you how things are. 
God in charge, God on the throne, God exalted over all. Let me, let me show you me. Let me show you me taking the authority. Let me show you, demonstrating my worthiness. Let me just show you the end, too. We're like, everybody, everybody knows, and all of creation praises my Father, and all of creation worships me as the king I have promised to be. This is the victory scene. Jesus is like, John, let me just remind you of who wins in all of this. Let me just remind you of where this is all heading. This is um, not new either. Ephesians 1 says something really interesting, verses 7 to 10. It talks about Jesus. Paul's uh, explaining uh, Jesus and what he's done and says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Okay, so he's talking about salvation. But then he says this, Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ. Okay, so... I'm making known to us the mystery of His will, which He accomplished in Jesus as a plan for the fullness of time. Okay, this is what I have in mind for the end, God says, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and on earth. Colossians, he says, for in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether in earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. All of these things connect back to the rest of the Bible. All of these things connect back to what Jesus told them before. Hey, look at what on the mountain after Jesus was resurrected. He has the disciples gathered around. He's, he, he's going to go back to heaven soon. He gives them the great commission. Everybody's uh, pretty familiar with that. How does the great commission start? Matthew twenty-eight, nineteen. Go therefore and make this. No, that's not how it starts. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's how the Great Commission starts. Hey, just so we're all clear here, boys, um, I'm in charge now. All the authority here, all the authority in heaven, it's all mine. All has been united in me. Um, I'm not asking for any advice from any of you. I'm in charge. Get to work. Jesus is showing John here the truth of that statement. God will win. God will have His way. And no amount of opposition will stop Him from doing what He said He would do. All of these scenes connect all the way back through the whole Bible, all the way back to Genesis. Chapters 4 and 5 in Revelation are a picture of the story of creation. They're a picture of the contest of heaven. This battle that's been raging from the beginning. It's a, here's what the battle is over. It's a battle over God's truthfulness. That's what we're fighting about. That's what heaven is fighting about. What has God said about His promises? That heaven and earth will pass away before His promises fail. Jesus said that God's Word is so true that there is not one God's Word is so true, thing false in it, not even one jot or tittle, not even one piece of punctuation out of place in God's Word whether it be written or spoken. What's the story of the fall? Did God really say? Right? The adversary asks Eve, implying God hasn't told you the truth. And when Adam and Eve begin to doubt God's Word and then they disobey, the battle is on. 
And God's, God's word cannot be proved false, and God promises His adversary defeat. In fact, God promises His adversary, I'm going to crush you. And then, just to make sure, God, everybody understands God's sovereignty and majesty and glory and power, just to make sure there are no doubts of who's in charge here. But God begins to unfold His plan to say things about how he's going to bring about his total victory over his doubters and his detractors. God's like, you think my word isn't true? You think my word can't be trusted? Let me tell you, I am going to do something so unimaginable to you. I know you guys couldn't conceive of any of this. It has to come from me. It is so wondrously glorious. What I am going to do in my creation is so amazing that it's going to be, you're not even going to believe, you wouldn't believe it if I told you. God says that several times in the Old Testament. You, I could tell you, but you wouldn't believe me anyway. You're just going to have to wait and see. In fact, if I, if I told you, you're going to think it's impossible. You'll, that I'll never be able to do that. But here's the thing. No matter how impossible you might come to wonder if my promises are, they're all coming true. And they're all coming true to the letter. You can search as much as you want. You can try and trap me. You can try and oppose me in any way you want. It will not matter. Not one sentence, not one word, not one letter of all that I have declared will ever prove to be anything less than totally truthful. You can count on it. This has been the story of the Bible. Uh, if you want to see something really cool, um, just flip to Psalm 2. I'll just read it quickly here, and we're going to end in a second. Psalm 2 says this. A thousand years before, David wrote this. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords away from us. Okay, you get this? The, 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 the kings of the earth are opposed to God and opposed to his plan anointed. and opposed, opposed to his anointed. They're opposed to he's going to do. And they say in verse 3, let us burst their pawns apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. God says, he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Literally, the Lord is going to make fun of them. The Lord is going to mock them. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, listen to what God has promised here. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Get the picture here? The kings and rulers of this earth standing opposed to what God has said his plan is, about what God has said his son is going to do and who he's going to be. And God has said right there in verse 6, my king will sit in Zion. Not 
in Dallas, not in Toronto, not in Moscow. Jerusalem is where God's king is going to sit. And it says something in our day and age that over the spot where God says he's going to put his throne is a dome. And on the inside of that dome today, it says God has no son. God says that doesn't matter. I will set my throne on my holy hill and nothing and no one is going to stop me. And this is what Jesus wants John to know before he shows him what happens, before he shows him all the trials and the tribulations of the time. And Jesus is like, John, remember the end. No matter what happens, there is nothing to fear. I am trustworthy. I am the faithful one. Everything I have told you will prove true. I am the one who loves you. I am the one who has freed you from your sin by my own blood. I am the bread of heaven and the living water. And anyone who eats and drinks of me will live forever and never hunger or thirst for righteousness. Again, I hold the keys to death and Hades in my hand, and I will unite all things in me, and nothing will stop me. That's what will be the end of the story. I looked, and around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, many voices of angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, are going to declare that I am worthy, and I am the one who is slain, and all power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing are coming my way. And guess what? I'm giving them all to you too.